Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of HSJ's Health Check podcast. I'm Nicholas Carding, and I'm standing in for our usual host, Annabelle Collins. Today, we'll be discussing if the end is nigh for one of the NHS's worst performing trusts, with rumours of a breaking up of the organisation starting to emerge. We'll also hear about the challenges facing the new chief executive of one of the NHS's most high profile trusts, although sadly the high profile is not necessarily down to good reasons. And we'll discuss how another trust made nearly £40 million from one Middle Eastern country last year and why this is so significant at a time of financial pressure and long waiting lists. Joining me to discuss all this are Emily Townsend and Ben Clover. Um, let's start with you, Emily. You're HSJ's uh, mental health correspondent, and you've written a piece on what I think is fair to say the most uh, long-challenged NHS trusts uh, in the last decade. The trust in question is Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust. So, Emily, can you first of all give us a brief overview of um, what your story is about? Yeah, so essentially there is a leadership inspection going on um, at Norfolk and Suffolk. Um, essentially earlier in the year there was a um, full inspection which rated it inadequate again for the fourth time. And now with James Illman and I have, have discovered that there is now a, a leadership inspection going on um, and it will basically try to decipher whether the trust has improved enough on its leadership. So it's, it's the well-led category of the Care Quality Commission's inspection. So we know that it's due to be completed by November. Um, inspectors are already there. Um, and we've been told by some sort of various well-placed sources um, that there's a real question now as to whether it will be broken up. So this is something that's obviously circulated several times after each inadequate um, you know, each inadequate rating. However, this time it really does seem quite serious. So it kind of the situation escalated when 140 of the trust's most senior doctors sent a letter um, to the trust chair, the new chair, Zoe Billingham, to say that they didn't have confidence in the board and they didn't feel that it was able to provide self safe care anymore. Um, and obviously that's quite an unprecedented intervention, um, which has now you know, prompted the CQC's inadequate rating was before that. So, you know, in the meantime, there's been this letter and inspectors we know are now in there revisiting it again. Um, and we've now heard that actually for the first time that these kind of questions over its future are really kind of being explored. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, I was looking a bit uh, at the, the history of this trust and I think it was formed in 2012, as far as I could see. And as you say, so it's been rated inadequate four times in that period. It's been in special measures at least, what, twice? Uh, yeah. And, it's, um, and also, obviously, there's been, as you've reported, countless CEOs have sort of come and gone uh, in, in that decade. Is there a sort of commonly accepted explanation as to why NSFT is, has been so challenged for so long? Are there any sort of particular reasons pertaining to their geography or, or patient population? 
I think it's quite a large trust. Obviously, it covers two um, large counties. And when I was speaking to Zoe, um, the, the new chair earlier in the year, she was saying that it was her knowledge that there are you know, exceptional amount of referrals um, to the trust. However, I think what one of the main problems has been over the years is you know, a revolving door of leaders. Um, so there have been, um, you know, various different, even in the last few years, um, when I've been reporting on it for HSJ and also before that for the East Anglian Daily Times and, and, and those kind of papers. And essentially, we did have um, at the Trust, Jonathan Warren came in from East London um, and he managed to bring up the rating from inadequate to requires improvement. I think that was in January 2020 and everyone sort of in the political and NHS kind of circles were thinking, right, actually, maybe this is a chance for it to to come out um, of, of its, you know, of its issues and kind of overcome them. But then Jonathan announced he was retiring um, we had another issue with Mason Fitzgerald, who was also from East London, who um, was found to have lied about having a law degree um, and essentially he then withdrew from the process. So what then happened is we had a um, sort of an interim from um, the southwest and then we also, I think, you know, relatively recently, I think within the last sort of couple of years or so, we've had Stuart Richardson, who was the chief operating officer, um, was promoted to CEO. So you've had a very kind of, you know, tumultuous period of revolving door, lots of leaders, um, not really kind of consistent leadership. And it's got its own issues in terms of sort of quality and, and performance. And you've also got massive kind of recruitment problems for Norfolk and Suffolk because, um, the proximity to London and the, you know, ability of consultants to kind of apply to London jobs. Um, and, you know, historically, the region has been difficult to recruit for in terms of workforce um, in the area. So you do have a combination of things. Um, but what you have had is you've had Stuart Richardson, who's the current CEO as Chief Operating Officer um, since 2018. He's come in and what's happened is that you've had a requires improvement rating and obviously during the pandemic performance has clearly deteriorated quite rapidly and um, yes you've had a lot of the pressures as many mental health trusts have of increased referrals and increased you know problems with mental health but no other trust appears to have been performing this badly for this yeah. long and it's come at a time correct me if i'm wrong but nsft was for a while and maybe still is it was sort of buddied with east london foundation trust wasn't it which was kind of one of the sort of shiny examples of mental health trusts uh, as far as i understood it has that is i mean can we sort of say that that's that's failed or what has that has that not helped nsft at all um because i mean there was some optimism that it would wasn't there I think it did work um, and clearly but with the rising of the rating to requires improvement, I think there was um, among staff and you know internally and externally, I think there was an impression that they were doing better during that time period. Because obviously East London is outstanding and um, considered outstanding by the Care Quality Commission. So I think during that time it was, but I think upon the ending of that, 
um, and the combination of various pressures with, with COVID and workforce and lots of other things going on, um, you know, 2021-22 has now brought in, you know, the failures have kind of resurfaced again. And that's obviously marked the end of that kind of partnership. Marie Gabriel, um, chair, who was obviously, she's now got a quite a senior job in London and the ICS. And, you know, she was widely regarded as being good. Um, however, she left. Zoe Billingham's also kind of come in um, in January. She's a former police inspector. Um, and she's, you know, she was kind of seen very widely when she was appointed as a, as a very good appointment and that she would hold to account as she has been. But obviously she's only been there for a short while. So all these leaders changing and not having that consistent leadership, I think, is, is causing the problems. Emily, obviously you cover, you, you know, you, you know about all, all 50 or so mental health trusts in England. Are there examples of other trusts that are perhaps on the outset, on the surface, they they look like they could be like NSFT in terms of they're in a large rural area, there's perhaps an old elderly population, um, some financial questions that are actually doing quite well. I mean, how, is it kind of the, the, the bigger mental health trusts that cover several counties like NSFT, which do better or do worse? Is there any sort of comparison there we can draw? I think it's it is difficult because I think you have you do have some mental health trusts that perform quite well. Um, so you've got some Dorset that Dorset Healthcare, for instance, is rural. Um, it does only cover one one county, as far as I know. Um, and you know I think you have some well performers, and but they are now entering this kind of landscape of should we integrate physical and mental health care and um, they have we've reported last week that they're going to share a chief executive and a chair um with like hospitals so i think there's a lot of kind of moves towards that but i with north Suffolk, i think you have you do have some unique challenges in that it is a huge trust um but when we're talking about splitting it um, you have the problem where you know it merged in the first place so it was two separate trusts in 2012 and there was a reason why it was merged together um, you also have problems with um, something that's been brought up repeatedly in my coverage of Norfolk and Suffolk is that if it is split then Suffolk will become potentially the poor relation in terms of you know it, it could be it was an interesting comment that was left on our, our story that you know if this trust were split they could be too small to be viable um as two kind of specialist mental health trusts and get that funding get that workforce you know for the individual trusts if you like and from a national perspective to kind of get have that voice um but obviously so far there hasn't really been that um kind of intervention nationally but interestingly I was I was going to sort of talk about the fact that we've now got like from a political point of view we've now got two um really prominent you know cabinet roles for you know prime minister and deputy prime minister for two East Anglian MPs mm. um Liz Truss South Norfolk and Therese Coffey for Suffolk Coastal it may, um, you know, we don't, we haven't really heard much about what they plan to do for mental health yet. There's obviously it's very early days, but I would hope that given the fact that, you know, the geography, they know that it's, that it's their constituencies, that something will be done about it finally. Are there any um, MPs in, in Norfolk and Suffolk that are very, you know, vocal proponents of splitting up the trust as um as as you've reported, you know that that's possibly one direction. What what's the kind of political mood among the other MPs about whether or not the splitting up is a good idea? So I think for the vast majority of MPs, I think they've 
lots of them are so it's a very blue um, conservative area and for the vast majority of them it's been you know repeated inspections and I think they've sort of sat there and they've said you know at least something needs to change but it's been you know that have said this over several years whereas um there have been a few that sort of select few really that have really pushed for it so we've had Duncan Baker who's um conservative FP for North Norfolk and um Dr Dan Poulter who's obviously um a former health minister who is now really vocally kind of pushing that right we need to split it up now um he's you know expressing concern about the leadership and their ability to turn things around um and i think the 140 doctors letter really kind of pushed him over the line um and i think that was the same with, with john Baker as well i haven't had too much experience in terms of sort of speaking to him about it but in terms of dr dan Poulter, i know that he is very passionate about you know turning this around but i think the problem we have is that there's been a lot of kind of toing and froing in terms of opinions and oh well let's give them another chance and i think that's been very much a case of like let's give them one final chance but it you know yeah yeah so final question to emily on this one simple question your gut feeling this time next year are we going to see nsfc still still alive or will it be split up what's your your gut feeling to you I think that there will be some change in terms of, you know, potentially some integration with, you know, potentially with other trusts in the area like others have done, um, or that there must be something that's that's got to happen in terms of there must be some sort of leadership support, um, perhaps another budding arrangement. Um, okay. I'm not sure if there will be a split because I, I think it's quite a controversial divisional issue um and i think there's a lot to be said about on both sides so i, I don't imagine that will be the case and um, given the sort of lack of action on it yeah thus far it would be a very drastic step wouldn't it ben um, just very quickly because i'm not sure has there been any examples of any trust being split up either you know whether it's acute community mental health in the last what decade i mean obviously mid staff was dissolved yeah, can't, South can't London Healthcare Trust was, oh, was yeah. dissolved, but like in practice, these are sort of uh, the, these are things that might pass kind of unnoticed by the public. We kind of go like, yeah, the, the hospitals that it ran still exist in in both cases. Kind of, I mean, services sometimes it can be a kind of a cover for for reconfiguring services, but but often, yeah. Um, no, no would, real difference. But would, no, a formal splitting up like this, <laughs> I don't think we have seen before. No. Okay. Well, we we look forward to seeing what happens um, there. So, from one uh, rather challenged mental health trust to another, um, this week it was uh, announced that the Tavistock and Portman Foundation Trust had appointed a new CEO. Um, it's turning into a bit of a mental health special this week. But Emily, could you just provide some context on on what this trust does and also why it's found itself in hot water lately, which the CEO will have to address. Yeah, so Tavistock is a, a much smaller, um, but it also is much more specialist um, mental health trust. So essentially they um, they were very well known for its gender identity service, um, which has caused a lot of controversy nationally over the over the years. They also provide quite a lot of educational services. Um, so it's on a much smaller scale and it's obviously completely different geography. It's in London. Um, so the problems that have been sort of surfacing in particular this year um it's been a really tricky year for Tavistock so 
essentially in, in January you had an external review which suggested that it had multiple governance issues um, and I think it was described as deep-seated cultural problems um, and there was also in the, this summer there was a big kind of freedom to speak up Guardian report which said that the trust had a significant bullying problem um, and you know that there are various issues um, that need to be tackled there and also this summer, um, so it's, it's been a bit of a bearer of bad news in terms of what's been happening at Tavistock over the last year. But um, NHS England, you know, separately announced that it would be shutting down the you know, its particular um, gender identity service and moving it elsewhere. So that was quite a big, obviously a big blow for the trust. But I think what it set out to do now is to kind of, you know, overhaul the governance to try and change things. Um, there was, um, we reported, I think it was very shortly after um, the NHS England announcement about the gender service, that, you know, that there are discussions going on um, within, you know, local NHS management about, again, potential takeover, potential merger, um, because it is a very small specialist trust, it's, you know, whether it could be absorbed into neighbouring trusts, etc. So we still don't know the outcome of those things, but given that we've now had um, Michael Holland, who is the you know, he's the current medical director at SLAM, so South London Maudsley. Um, you know, he is coming over and as CEO. That's because um, the current CEO, Paul Jenkins, is going to be retiring. He's been there for eight years and he's retiring. So we've also got a new chair um, who's coming from Cumbria and um, Northumberland Tyne Weir, which is um, John Lawler. And that's an obviously an outstanding organisation considered to be by the CQC. So you know, we've got two new leaders coming in um, and, you know, that there's no doubt that he's inheriting a bit of a tricky intray in terms of restoring. Yeah. Do, do you think the fact that these two new leaders have been appointed quite recently and uh, both seem, seem very sort of respectable uh, in terms of their sort of reputations and, and background um, sort of highly thought of, does that mean, do you think that it's unlikely the trust will get merged or taken over, um, which you said could have been on the cards possibly at one point, but is that kind of closing the door a bit on those, on those rumours? Yeah, so I think this sort of, these appointments, if you like, I think they do show that they, you know, it's, it's a display of, well, we've got these really kind of respected leaders. I think Michael Holland has been in, you know, for the best part of two decades, he's kind of been working in, in the London mental health sphere. And you've also got, um, you know, John Lawler, obviously very respected CEO. So I think you do have two people there that, you know, I, I'm not going to necessarily say that it will shut down the rooms because I do think that there will still be discussions about it given you know the services that it provides and the closure of one of its kind of biggest um you know areas but I do think that it has to kind of be given a bit of a chance I think this is kind of you know coming at a time where um you know you've, ha you've had a bit of an overhaul of services provided you've also had a lot of criticism of governance and culture and I think you know from my perspective it would seem a little bit unfair perhaps to say right we're now going to take it over and merge it and not allow these two leaders to kind of pave the way if you like but it, it has historically had issues and um, but I think that a lot of the governance and internal stuff has come to the fore you know in the last year or so particularly.
Yeah, OK. Well, that, that actually brings me nicely, uh, Ben, uh, on to our final topic of the podcast today. Um, speaking of uh, hyper specialists um, and world famous uh, trusts, you have written a somewhat unusual story, I think it's fair to say, about uh, the Royal Marsden, which has made quite an eye-opening amount of money from just one Middle Eastern country. So, Ben, can you just tell us what, what what's this story about, first of all? Yeah, so this is about the Royal Marsden Foundation Trust, which is a cancer specialist, um, one of only a few in the country, um, specialist trust. Um, and it's important that it is an independent foundation trust because it makes so much of its income comes from private patients that the um, the 2012 Health and Social Care Act was modified specifically for them so as they could earn uh, even more. They used to be, uh, the cap used to be significantly lower on what proportion of a trust's income could be private um, or could be could be non-NHS. Um, and the story we published uh, recently was we, we've we've been known that for a long time. There's been just a you see it in annual accounts and things that um, the Marsden, along with lots of other kind of largely London specialist trusts, uh, has has to produce how much of its income comes from non-NHS sources. Mm. What we got broken down for the first time in some court documents was exactly how much of that business came from embassies, um, i.e., for the for the uh, provision of healthcare to to foreign nationals. Um, lots of which in London is from uh, Gulf states, but that um, in this one particular year, in 2019-20, uh, fully nine percent of the trust's total turnover, um, so just under 40 million quid, came just from Kuwait, um, which, like I say, we knew that a lot of uh, a lot of the private income from London specialists came from embassies, um, but it was. It, we, we'd never seen it broken down in any way before. Uh, and it was just, 40 million, wasn't it? Yeah, just about, yeah. just about 40 million. Um, and this is in 2019, 20. So the, the picture might have, might have changed a little bit since then, but mm. it, it was, it was, I, we thought it was noteworthy that um, just one, one quite small uh, foreign state had played such a large role uh, in the in the financial stability of this of this very important um, trust, because obviously uh, the Marston does lots and lots of, of NHS work. Um, yeah. How, yeah. I mean, can I ask Ben, because this is well beyond the realms of my knowledge. I mean, how you how normal is that kind of income for an NHS trust, uh, you know, to get from just one foreign country and is it is it something which is encouraged or, or frowned upon by you know the the, the good and the great in NHSE oh, and elsewhere it sort of depends where you are on various political spectrums because there's because there's arguments quite quite good arguments um both ways actually and like I say we've been aware for a while that um that there's significant amounts of of private income come into largely the London Trust. And just before this, I, I looked up some old um, data, some old comparisons uh, we'd done on it. And the Marsden are always like the number one performing uh, trust on kind of on private income. So, but there are, there are interesting arguments to be made about this, like kind of the, 
that and and I don't and I I'm going to make them at some length if you'll indulge me just because um because I think there's a sort of I think it's a microcosm of an argument that's going to come down the line about the funding of the NHS overall. So defenders of of this system say, look, um, consultants are going to do private work on their own time, right? That's a fact. Kind of part of the reason UCLH and Imperial uh, have such high flown. Um, clinical reputations is because in, if you walked from Imperial to UCLH, you would walk through Harley Street, of course, kind of like one of the world's great centres for for private medicine. So the argument goes: the consultants will be doing this work anyway. Why don't we let the NHS get some of the profit from it? It's mm. obviously profitable, right? And uh, lots of this work um, it will pay for for NHS treatment we won't, wouldn't otherwise be able to offer. Um, and also these very uh, senior people who are often the best in their in their field like in the country or, or in the world sometimes um, they are drawn to where they can do private work to where they can do the top like research stuff um, and like education stuff um, so if we don't do it they'll just go and do that work for HCA down the road uh, and it's worth pointing out that like uh, just on the turnover figures even from a couple of years ago the Marston's been pretty successful into eating into HCA's business, kind of like lots of lots of the mm. private consultants that work for this US-based firm. Sorry, they do lots of consultants do their private work with HCA and would like to do their private work for the Marston, but but they do their day job, they do the their NHS hours, part of what gives them their cachet as clinicians uh, in the NHS. Um, that that's that argument. Like if we didn't do mm. it, someone else would, uh, and it and it pays. We may as well take some of that money. Um, so, so what's the counter argument? Well, the counter argument is kind of like um, <laughs> that it is essentially uh, unjust that an NHS patient and a private patient could have exactly the same condition. The private patient may even have a, a more mild uh, version of cancer, of their cancer, and be treated before the NHS payment. Uh, for an NHS patient, uh, because they are richer, mm. that kind of that really, what are we doing? What, what are NHS facilities being used for? If we, we should clear the NHS backlog before we start going, all right, all right, now we're going to treat um, NHS patients. Mm. Uh, sorry, now we're going to treat private patients. That kind of that in a period where I just looked up the the, the, the most recent figures we got from some leaked data. Um, when we've got a kind of 335,000 waiting list for cancer overall, like 12,000 of whom have waited more than 104 days. And incidentally, that's up 7% total waiting list um, yeah. from from June. Kind of what are we doing, doing this probe work? Um, but could that could could it would it be you know as easy as that just to say we're not going to do any private work, we're going to do all the NHS work first? Or does the, is the trust ability to carry out that private work, work private work only possible because it gets that money from from the private patients that funds it is that yeah this issue? is where this is where it gets really comfortable it's slightly hard to conceptualize from, from my point of view you could go do you know what um here's all the, like let's say in one bucket you've got all the staff uh that, that can do but do all of this work right you could as a government ban private work chuck everyone on the waiting list and go uh we are we are going to increase our spend on cancer treatment so as everyone gets treated. Um, but, it, but in practice, what we have is uh, an NHS funding envelope that's that's not kept pace with demand 
and looks likely to like outright diminish uh, in the next couple of years. So we have as a system, as a as a nation, we've only paid for so much like publicly funded resource so people can do in their own time what, what they want really so like the, the consultants and other staff are, are going to perform this work so you know we may as well and that get that takes you back to the where you may as well uh to harvest some of that profit you know yeah. even though we do, even though we don't know uh and because the judge ruled against the chpi we might never know um how profitable or mm. otherwise it is but it's sort of it kind of comes back to this this argument about like are we happy to accept more just just because you, you start to see in the times and the, and the kind of a spectator lot in the times and in the daily telegraph kind of go like well we something must be done and a discussion about the funding model uh needs to be had it's like i don't know does it or maybe we should just like fund it <laughs> like france or germany fund it um but but you could are we willing to accept perhaps a bigger pie overall with things like co-pay um, if it means if that meant more NHS patients were treated quicker but there was more inequity in the system mm. I, like people who say with co-pay oh you can um, you know those those people get taken off NHS waiting lists obviously that's not the case with people who work for the Q18 Ministry of Oil they're not uh, NHS patients in the first place um, yeah. But I, yeah. I, I, mean, I, I go on about it as such, like just because I think we're being sort of softened up to um, to have some kind of debate about uh, about how the NHS is funded overall. And one of the arguments that will probably come down the line is quite similar to this about, you know, no more NHS patients can be treated if we allow more private money in the system, but that will lead to more inequity. OK, thank you very much, Ben and Emily. Um, and also thanks very much to you for listening um that concludes our podcast this week uh hj's health check podcast is available on all the usual podcast platforms uh please get in touch if there's anything you would like us to discuss uh, you can do so by emailing annabelle.collins at hsj.co.uk and we'll be back next week thanks very much bye-bye